think with me for a minute about all of the changes that have taken place in marriage, in marriages since the beginning. You know, it all began with God. He put together the first couple, Adam and Eve, and he said to them, a man shall leave his father and mother. Of course, they did not have either of those. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's how it all began. Not long after that, not many years, a man decided, named Lamech, that he didn't want just one wife, he wanted multiple wives. And so polygamy entered into our world early on. Historians tell us it was only about 4,000 years ago, around the time of Abraham, that we found our first written documents of marriage contracts and uh, marriage ceremonies. They date from about 4,000 years ago in Mesopotamia. And then, of course, as you know, early marriages were tended to be uh, arranged marriages. You had uh, the families would arrange the, the marriage for their son and their daughter. That's how it took place for many, many years, including to our very day today in many countries of the world right now. And traditional marriage, of course, involved courtship, and then marriage, and then sex, and then children. Now, we've switched the order today, as you know, completely. And of course, sometimes throughout history, they didn't, um, they reversed the order a little bit, and so you had shotgun marriages that uh, uh, developed. And then, of course, moving into more modern times, people started to live together and we realized that that's not good for a society and so they had um, common law marriages and now, bringing it up to our time, they're called now starter marriages. Have you heard of that? That's the belief that most uh, marriages are going to fail and so because of that you get, a, you, get a, you get a free pass on your first marriage. That's called a starter marriage trying to stem the tide in our culture of all of the marriage mess. I don't know if you know, but in 1997, and in three states of the United States today, we have what are called covenant marriages. Have you heard of that? Uh, uh, Colorado's not one of them. Whereas the people in these three states, it started in Louisiana in 1997, those who agreed to a covenant marriage vowed that before they would be divorced, or before they were married, they would seek premarital counseling, and there were certain steps they would take before they walked down the road to divorce. The purpose was to try to stop the, 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 the tide of divorce that was going crazy in our culture. And then, of course, everything changed more recently. Actually, it changed in the world in the 1980s. Denmark was the first country to approve of, of domestic partnerships between people of the same sex. And then, of course, um, in our country, that became the law of the land. And as of uh, 2023, that's the year we're in right now, there are 34 countries in our world comprising more than a billion people who have same-sex marriages, which are common. But then, of course, that was not enough. It's changed radically in our culture because though polygamy is very, very old, from the seventh generation from Adam. It began almost immediately. Of course, now we have in our country what is called polyamory. And that is where people get married to each other. Sometimes it's called an open marriage, where they're free to have sexual, out, sexual relations with someone outside their marriage, just as long as there's consent. But 
living in a society like ours that believes in the equality between the sexes, male and female, you can't have polygamy without polyandry. So now, there's some in some counties in America, you can be a woman married to two men. Used to be one man married to many women. And I've told you many times that I lived in the country of Swaziland back in the 1970s for three years. And our king at that time had 100 wives. The present king, I think, only has 20. But when I was there, he had 20, and one of the king's sons was in my class. I think he was son number 69 of, of, of the king. King Sobuza was his name. Well, then, of course, to lessen the, 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 the stigma of divorce, now Gwyneth Paltrow and others before her came up with this concept of conscious of uncoupling. That sounds better than divorce, after all. You just consciously uncouple. I don't think when they had a ceremony, they consciously coupled, but they decided to consciously uncouple. And then, in 2013, the word was, um, was uh, coined, instead of wedlock, now it's called wed lease. It's only temporary. You don't get wedded for life, you get wedded temporarily. And now, um, no longer do you have the word couple, now we've added into our vocabulary the word thruple. That's the word that's used when you have multiple people in, in a marriage, or three people in a marriage. I don't know if they're going to call it four thruple. I don't know what four is, and then quintuple, or whatever they're going to call it today. Now, I don't know if this has happened yet. I didn't check it out. Maybe some of you can do this for me. But I'd be very surprised if there are not people today who have married animals, legally. If it's not legal, I promise you, I'm not a prophet, but I'm, I promise you that within 10 years we will have people legally marrying animals. Why? You have to, because of speciesism. If in fact evolution is true, you cannot say one species is better than another. And there are many today that say we are one of the worst species because of what we've done. So a person to marry an animal of a different species has got to be um, accepted very soon. And then, I suppose, we'll start to marry trees and who knows what else. But it doesn't stop. This is what is our world with regard to marriage today. And it's, a, it's a quite, quite a, a, a far cry from what God first created. Uh, marriage in America and in our world is evolving at breakneck speed. And sometimes in the midst of this milieu, we forget completely what the original design really was. It's easy to forget that in America. So today, we're going to go to the passage from Ephesians, which is probably the main passage in all the Bible on the subject of marriage. It, um, it, it quotes Genesis chapter, the early chapters in Genesis about marriage. It's um, the best known passage, the most important passage, and the most controversial text on marriage in the Bible. So welcome to Ephesians chapter 5 verses 21 to 33. I titled this, Marriage Matters. You can take that two ways. One, marriage really matters. It's really important. Or, these are matters about marriage that we're going to talk about. We're going to do both of them. Now, in our text of Scripture today, we're going to start with the banner verse. The whole discussion that the Apostle Paul is going to have about marriage is under the banner of Submit to one another out of your reverence for Jesus. That's the banner. And then it's going to turn from there, but you don't know this, into what's called the 
household colds. This is the culture. Because we Christians live in a culture. And if you're going to understand what the Apostle Paul is teaching these people about marriage, you need to understand what was going on in the culture at that time. They had, from all the major Greek and Roman writers, codes that described how you're supposed to carry out a marriage. We'll look at the household codes. And then the Apostle Paul is going to give instructions to women, then he's going to give instructions to men, and then he's going to summarize it at the end. So our text, Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. It begins, of course, with um, Paul's statement about submission. Submit yourselves to one another out of your reverence for Jesus Christ. That's how it begins. Now remember, that is the last command in the previous section. That section started off in chapter 5 with, you are called to imitate God. You are called, in verse 15, to, win, to live wisely. You are called by God to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and you are called to submit to one another out of your reverence for Christ. Now, remember, this is written to Christians. This is something that I'm going to bring up over and over again. One of the things that we do wrong as Christians, and we get in a ton of trouble, is we take what God said to us, and we try to foist it on the world. And the world says, out of reverence for Christ, I don't reverence Christ. I don't imitate God. I do not have the Holy Spirit. Of course they don't. But we try to push on our world commands that were given by God to us and not to them. That's a problem. And yet we do it all the time. We live in a society in which the word submit to one another is absolutely horrifying. We would never do that. After all, we live in a society that believes in individual rights, in assertiveness, in liberty, equality, equity, fairness, my rights. And then you say, submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ? Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are in an incredible clash of worldviews right now. When we say submit to one another, the majority of people in our culture go, what in the world are you talking about? We would never do that. Well, after all, where do they get our world? Where do we get our sense of right and wrong? Where do we get our sense of truth in this world who do not have God's word? They're not following God's word. They don't give a rip about God's word. They say, you follow your heart. You follow the mores of the culture. We don't follow the Word of God. And then you say, submit to one another out of your reverence for Christ. They go, that's baloney. Someone named Clyde Snodgrass wrote this. He's a commentator on the book of Ephesians. Our society emphasizes equality. But mutual submission is a much stronger idea. With equality, you still have a battle of rights. Look what's going on in America today. Equality can exist without love, but it will not create Christian community. 
with mutual submission we give up rights and we support each other mutual submission is love in action mutual submission will not allow us to promote ourselves and our own interests but neither does it make us doormats to be used by others you see submission in this text is a Christian word Christians are admonished to 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 reflect the nature of the Trinity by the way this church is called Trinity the Father the Son submits to the Father the Holy Spirit um, glorifies the Son and they all live in mutual harmony with one another submission is something that reflects the nature of the Trinity it's a way that we live out our relationship with Jesus Christ we place ourselves under that's what the word submission we place ourselves under each other to build each other up so that we can accomplish what God is trying to do through our lives in his world that's what it means so that's the first thing he says here's the banner the banner is submit to one another out of your reverence for Christ now let's turn to the culture you see in the culture in which this was written and the, 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 those who framed the culture were the people like Plato in his Republic, or Xenophon, or Aristotle, or Plutarch, or Seneca, or Philo. These are names of people you have heard. All of these people and many others at this time and before this time that Paul writes issued what are called household codes because every society has a vested interest in making sure that homes are orderly because if homes are not orderly you will not have an orderly society and if you don't have an orderly society you will have chaos and with chaos you have great hurting of human beings and human beings cannot flourish under chaos and so the first place you start is the ordering of human society every one of these people wrote and we have them to this day household codes and the household codes, the first thing the household codes would talk about was the father. The pater familias, the father of the family. And in these household codes, the father of the family had all the power. No surprise there. And so in the family, the Greek and Roman families, you had a hierarchy with the father and then the mother and then the children in order of their birth. That was way that the way that the family was put together. There was not equality among the members of the family. The father had the power and the children did not. This was stunning to me. I was in Uganda some years ago visiting a national park. And as we left, we came upon a whole huge family of baboons. And we had with us in the van we were driving a bunch of bananas. We stopped. And I wish I had this on film because I, I think I could have won an award. Uh, not for my filmography, but from what I saw. We took one of those bananas and we threw it out. There was this one very, very large um, male baboon. And then there were several female baboons and many little children. When we threw out the banana, they ran for it and the male went <laughs> and they all backed off and he just walked <laughs> grabbed it and ate it 
We threw out another banana. He did the same thing. We threw out another banana. And now, um, by about the third or fourth banana, the females were, that's his wives. They were going, they were shaking. That's why I thought I could win some award from this. They were shaking. I forgot how many it was. It might have been as many as 10 bananas, but he he took every single one. Survival of the fittest, strongest wins. My son beat up your honor student. You see the bumper stickers? I don't care how smart you are, but if I have the power, I win. That's the way life is put together. That's the law of nature. Apart from God, that's the way life works on the planet. The strongest wins. And that's the way it was set up in Roman society, in Greek society. That was the way the culture worked. And that's the way many cultures to this day still work. But when the New Testament was written, when Christianity entered into the scene, the writers of the Bible, particularly the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, they wrote household codes as well. We have them in Ephesians and Colossians and 1 Peter. I think I gave them to you on the notes. They had household codes. Why? Well, for one thing, Christians were being accused of breaking down family values. So there was an apologetic purpose. Secondly, the Apostle Paul says that Christianity is not a clone of the culture. We don't take on the culture. We're countercultural. And besides, if God wants to create a family, he's not following Plato and Aristotle. He's following the living God who put it together in the first place. And so they wrote household codes. But they did not give all the power to the, to the pater familias, the father. In fact, they made the one with the more power the more responsible. That had never been heard of in, in, in household codes. Besides, they said that responsibilities are two-way, not one-way. And there's equality between the children and the parent, between the husband and the wife. There is not ontological inequality between them. There is not an ontological hierarchy. That was stunning. They had never heard of anything like this before. And so, by the way, when Christianity came on the scene, Christianity, Christians were the progressives, the liberals. They did not follow the culture of their day at all, not even close, because the culture, including our culture, usually warps badly what God has designed for human flourishing. And so now the Apostle Paul, after giving the banner, submit to one another out of your reverence for Jesus Christ, and assuming these people understood the culture, because that's what we live in, He now is going to turn to wives, then to husbands, and then he's going to summarize. Some years ago, actually the year was 2005, I preached on this passage in the church where I was a pastor in Longmont, Colorado. I did something very uh, funny, and I think most of the people remember it. It was a much larger group than this. At this point, I said, could all the men in the room please stand up? All the men stood up, and I said, we are leaving right now. We're all going to the gymnasium, which has been all set up for the men. And so I led them all out. But before I did, I said, the women, we're all going to stay here. 
One of the women on our staff was an excellent Bible teacher. She was um, a head of our counseling center. I said, Pam is going to stay here now with the women and talk to the women what God wrote to you. And I'm going to take all the men and we're going to discuss what God said to us. And by the way, guess what? We have been reading each other's mail. We're not going to do it ever again in this church. If God says wives, he didn't write that to husbands. Because this is what happened in church. Wives. Wife. Listen, wife. Listen up, wife. No, God never wrote that to you. When it says wives, men, close your ears. If you ever listen to that, you are evil. He did not write that to you. Men do that. Hey, wife, listen to what God said. No, we don't. Do you read each other's mail? Do you allow that in your home? I don't. I don't read my, my wife's mail. I don't read my children's mail. We read what God wrote to us. And so if you ever, today, you start nudging each other, you are in trouble. You don't read what God wrote to somebody else. So when it says wives, God did not write that to you men. And when it says husbands, God did not write that to you women. And so we said, we're not going to play this game. We separated. Pam took the women, and I took the men. I don't know what Pam said, but it was probably pretty good. Because this is what God said. Wives. Submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, the first thing you know there, notice there is wives. So who's he talking to? Wives. Which means, who do you have to be if you're a wife? A married woman. Okay, that's the first thing you need. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. He did not write, women, submit yourselves to men. That is not the word of God. Where did that come from? Wackos. And many of those wackos are in churches. God did not write that. He said, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. So obviously the first thing you ought to see from God's word is God's not writing this to women in general. That's obviously true. And he's not writing it, to, he's, he's writing it to husbands, not to men in general. Then it says, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now this is one of the most debated and abused texts in the New Testament. What does it mean? Well, if you take it on its very, on its head, Jesus is the head of the church, and it says that husbands are the head of the wife. Now remember, this is in the context of the church. This is in the context of Christians. Uh, this is in the context, the context of those who have been saved because it says the Savior there. This is not something we push off on our culture or on the world because it's not written to them. It's written to us. We as Christians should be under the, the normal practice of submitting ourselves to Christ. And when we do so, we submit ourselves as someone who is perfect. Wives, it says, submit yourself to your husband. And when you do so, you're submitting yourself to someone who is not perfect. And so, of course, there are limits to submission. There is an extent. We submit, someone wrote that John Stott 
who himself was not married but a great preacher, he said, we submit right up to the point where obedience to human authority would involve disobedience to God. At that point, disobedience becomes our duty. Now, wives in the first century world were viewed contemptuously. We have absolutely strong evidence that wives were not loved. You weren't supposed to love your wife. You loved your mistress. You did not marry for love in the first century. You married to raise respectable children that had a name. That's why they were arranged marriages. You arranged it based on your social stature. That's how it worked back then. And, and this is um, a, 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 one writer said women were the worst plague that Zeus had made. Another um, writer said the two best days in a woman's life are when someone marries her and when he carries her dead body to the grave. In Judaism, women were not counted in the quorum in the synagogue and were ritually unclean for many days a month. A rabbi advised, do not talk much with women, and another said, including your own wife. That's what was common in that particular day. This is from Demosthenes, the great Greek statesman and orator. This is one. Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of our persons, but wives to bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our households. So this concept of husbands and wives loving each other, what in the world, why would you do that? Why would you love a spouse? That's not what you want. They're not there for love. That's for mistresses and, and concubines. You marry someone for their social stature and to give you children that have a name and can go up in society. So then God says, why should, should you submit? Because to, to, so that you, you could, um, uh, wait, I lost, so that you could make uh, her, um, uh, she, she is, she, 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 you, wives, you, you submit to your husbands as to the Lord, but that doesn't mean becoming a doormat. It means you purposely place yourself under to serve him for his well-being so that your household can flourish. That's what it says. Now, throughout the, the, the centuries, Christian leaders have made a mess of God's word. Some people take this passage to give a husband license to enforce his will on his wife. Not good. Sometimes people use this text of scripture, and I've, have, I've run into this, as a trump card to ensure that the husband gets his way. Some people have exploited this passage so that husbands can demand unconditional obedience. Some have even used it to, to express that uh, women are inferior. They're real nuts, or what else they mean. And by the way, do you remember the text in the Old Testament of Abel, uh, Abigail and Nabal? David was on, his run, on a run, one of the many times where he was a fugitive, and he came across this very, very wealthy man by the name of Nabal. And by the words, Nabal is the Hebrew word fool. And David said, hey, rich guy, can you help out my men? We're, we're on the run and we need some help. And Nabal basically swore and, and, and said bad things to him, and David went down the road with, you know, kind of hurt. 
Well, his men said, wait, 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 you're the king. You're the anointed of God. And that guy just cursed you. Let's go back and kill him. Well, Abigail, Nabal's wife, got wind of what was going to happen. And she knew that they wouldn't stop at Nabal himself. They would kill the family as well. She got all kinds of provisions together, went to David and his men said, Oh, um, um, my husband fits his name. In other words, he's a fool. Does that sound like submission to you? It does to me in the Bible's character, way the Bible places it. She said, My husband's a fool. Don't, don't take it out on us. Here are some provisions for you and your men. And David was very pleased. Well, when Nabal found out about the Bible, it seems like he had a heart attack and died. And then David took Abigail as one of his wives. That's what happened. Well, that's in God's word, and she's highly commended for, for, for what she did. A Christian wife should never hear her Christian husband say, Wife, God says submit. That's not your male. Or, Wife, I am your head. That's not your male. It is never a husband's job to make his wife submit. Some years ago, when I was in college, I, was a, I, I worked at a Christian camp called Honey Rock Camp. It was owned by Wheaton College, and I was a student at Wheaton College at the time. And there, living on the campus of Honey Rock Camp in northern Wisconsin, was this old, godly woman by the name of Mrs. Edmund. Her husband had been the president of Wheaton College, a good, close friend of Billy Graham. And so my friend and I, who were both counselors there at Honey Rock Camp, we knew that Mrs. Edmund was there, a very famous Christian woman, and we decided, let's go visit her. And he was to get married not many months later. So we went to Mrs. Edmund. She was one of those people who got up like at 4 o'clock every morning to pray, like for all the students at Wheaton. Amazing woman. And so we talked to her for a while, and we said that my friend was soon to get married, and she said, do you want me to give you some marriage advice? We, and we kind of looked at each other, oh no, here it goes. We're going to be here for the next couple hours as this godly, wise old woman is going to give marriage advice. And she turned to my friend, I think his name was John. She said, John, is she selfish? If she's selfish, I'd recommend you run right now. And if she's not, you've got to keep her. That's all she said. That's all she said. Selfish is a synonym of submission, or, or, or the opposite of it. Are they selfish? Is the basic thrust of your life, women, me? Or is the thrust of your life, thee? And he makes all the difference in the world. Is she selfish? So the key to submission to me is selflessness. That's the key. But... Now we get to the man. Women, go to sleep. Go to sleep. Now if you want to count your verses, God gives only a few verses to women, and now he's going to give nine to the men. When they first read this, they go, in light of the highest household codes, they go, no, no, this stuff is crazy. Women have all the responsibilities Men have nothing. They get to do whatever they want. And here you give nine verses to the man, and basically you tell the man to die, you're crazy. Because that's what he's saying. By the way, to live, to submit to your husband is not even close to as hard as sacrificing your life for your wife. 
God's Word always places the heavier responsibility on the one you might think is higher, the head. What did our head do? Our Lord Jesus Christ, what did He do? He died on the cross for us. We say, submit to, to Jesus, and Jesus says, okay, that's good. I want you to submit to me, but I want to tell you, my part in this responsibility is I will die for you. Which is harder? Which is greater? Which is more difficult? The trouble is, we men don't do it. That's the problem. As I said to you, in that society, men, husbands, were not inclined to love their wife. But here's the first thing God says to husbands. Husbands, love your wives. First of all, that's weird. How, how do you love your wife? Just as Christ loved the church. There's your example. How much? He gave himself up for her. He died for her. Why? To set her apart as holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Here's your role, husbands. No, no wife is listening. They're all, they're, all, they're all sleeping. No wife can listen. This is not your mail. Here's your goal. Sacrifice yourself for the benefit of your wife so that she can blossom into the person that God created her to be. That's your job. Guys, no woman ever even heard that. They're all sleeping. I see it all the time. And of course, this ne no Christian in history has ever done this. But do you see what's in our, our newspapers now? Every day, more and more women are going to work demanding equality, and women are working full-time jobs as are men, and guess what's happening at home? Who's doing all the work at home? Who? Who? Women. Women are doing all the work at home. So they're each working their 40 hours a week. They come home. The man has a right to watch football. The woman has to do all the work at home. That's what's happening in our culture. All the statistics tell us that. Can you believe it? But thankfully, there's never been a Christian home ever that that's happened, ever. Never. I know, I know. Am I sure? No, that's the problem. We are so, we're following our world. No, men. We are the main ones who take responsibility for doing the work at home. When. What is, what in the world is going on in our crazy culture? No wonder they're angry. They should be angry. This is ridiculous. Who is supposed to be the sacrificer? Who throughout all of history has been the one who sacrifices in the home? Every culture, everywhere. Who? Women. God didn't say that to them. Who is supposed to sacrifice yourself for the well-being of your home and your spouse? The men. We're the ones that are supposed to be working our tails off when we're home, not them. Of course, we're all going to have to work. Do you see how this is? And when the people in the early um, century saw this, they go, what? And, and how do you know if it's working? Well, God's Word told us. You do this so that your wife can blossom 
she can be set apart and blossom into the person that God has created her to be. Wow, where does that happen? <laughs> um, not in America, I can assure you that, that, that. Well, how do you know to do that? Well, God tells us, verse 28, husbands, love your wives as you love your own bodies. Now, you know, of course, we live in a society of saying you've got to first love yourself. Well, the Bible assumes we do love ourselves. After all, if we get food, we used to take the, the best and the most for ourselves. We're, we're always looking out for number one. It says, you are supposed to live such that you transfer your love of your own body to your wife. So it says. And how does this happen? Well, a man, for this reason, why? In order to make your wife blossom into the person that God has created her to be, he quotes Genesis. He says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So how does a marriage work? First of all, a declaration of independence, your independence from your father and mother, that's leave. And then a, a, a statement of commitment to each other, that's cleave. And then a, 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 a uni uniting two different people into one, that's weave. And then the two become one flesh. That's conceive. That's how you do. You leave, and you cleave, and you weave, and you conceive. In that order, by the way. God says, that's, that's God's plan. That's how he put it together. And then he ends with, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. That's the way the church operates. That's the way a marriage operates. And then he ends with, that statement that summarizes it, he began with the banner, submit yourselves to one another out of the reverence for Christ, and he ends with a summary, each of you should love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. A man named Dr. John Gottman spent 20 years in research studying 2,000 couples who had been married between 20 and 40 years. As he did this study over 20 years, he found that there were two ingredients that resulted in a strong marriage. Can you guess what they were? Love and respect. Wives are made to love. They want love and expect love. Husbands fail to deliver. Husbands are made to be respected. They want respect and they expect respect. And wives fail to deliver. And in a book called Love and Respect by Emerson Egerich, he says, when that happens, you enter the crazy cycle. Where a woman who longs for love is not loved, when a man who has a respect meter deep inside his soul is not respected, you enter the crazy cycle. And a marriage will soon fail. Submit yourselves to one another out of your reverence to Christ. Do not follow the norms of your culture. Wives, respect your husbands. Husbands, sacrifice yourself for the well-being of your wife so that she can blossom into the person God created her to be. Summary, wives love your husband. I mean, wives respect your husbands. Husbands love your wives. So what's the conclusion? One. I hope you've heard me say this several times, beware of imposing Christian commands on a secular culture. 
we get into a lot of trouble. The commands that have been given to us in Ephesians have a theological basis. The Trinity and the cross, they, they, um, they're coupled with a theological enablement of the Holy Spirit in filling us. Our motivations are theological. Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. Our examples are Jesus and the church. Our purposes are sanctification and outreach. And God promises rewards if we follow what he says. Be careful about imposing Christian standards on a secular culture. We do it all the time. Second, beware of acquiring our marital cues from our culture rather than God's word. We do that all the time too. Third, don't read each other's mail. Males don't read the mail that God wrote to your wife. Wives don't read your husband's mail. Read your own. Take it seriously. Fourth, beware of the legalistic junk mail that will ruin your marriage and give Christ and his church a bad name. Beware of the junk mail. I'm your boss. Do what I say. The domination and doormat scenario. The rigid and ridiculous roles. By the way, one of my daughter's names is Susanna. Do you know why I called her? We, we named her Susanna. It comes from Luke. The Bible says that Jesus and his disciples, how were they funded, by the way? They weren't working regular jobs. Where did they get their money? Susanna and Joanna, a group of women, were paying the bills. What does that do to your roles? By the way, check out the perfect or the great woman in Proverbs 31. She's buying and selling fields. She's not some doormat sitting at home cooking stew. She might have done that too. In fact, it does say she does that. This woman is out there buying and selling stuff. And this is in the Old Testament. This is the ideal woman, according to God's holy word. Be careful of putting rigid and ridiculous roles because they don't fit either the New or the Old Testament on people at all. Be aware that a good Christian marriage is a picture of God's love in action. And that is so, so important. Well, I end with a story. My, I am the beneficiary of, of wonderful mom and dad. Not everyone get that, but my mother didn't have that. She, her background was horrible. When my mother was two years old, her father walked out on the family, never to be seen again, and he didn't divorce grandma. He left her with six children, and he married somebody else. He was a bigamist, never provided a dime. This is during the Depression. Grandma, my mother's whole life, they were on welfare. They had no money. The only hope they had to make it was the government check that they got each month. The family was a mess. One of my mother's sisters committed suicide. There was mental illness. One of them was killed by a police officer, one of my mother's brothers, while, as he was uh, riding his bicycle. Another died in childhood. It was terrible. I did not like going to my grandmother's house as a child because I was afraid. It was in the inner city of Chicago. It was a dangerous place. But then my mother, my mother married my father. He was a simple man. He's a carpenter, good with his hands. He was a good man. And they had a good long marriage. My father died about 12 years ago, and I was there when my father died. And um, 
as were most of my siblings, were eight children in my family. And my mother was not there. And so when my father died, we called mom and we said, Mom, Dad has passed away. And then my, shortly thereafter, my mother came. And she, I saw, I remember so well what she did. She came into the room where my father's body was in the bed and we were all around it. And she walked over to my father and, and she kissed him and she said, Harold, you gave me a really good life. I'll never forget her words. Harold, you gave me a really good life. Here was this throwaway child who never had a father. Harold, you gave me a really good life. Husbands, I hope our wives can say, oh, or even to anyone. Many of us aren't married. I'm not anymore. Friend, you gave me a really good life. But even better, eternal life. Oh, Father, I pray that we could walk on this planet such that many people could say, you gave me a really good life. But even more, that one day you could say, welcome to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We long to hear that even more. Oh, Heavenly Father, may you fill this body, even though many of us are old and many of us are widowed and We've been married for many years and some divorced and all these different things we have. Oh, Heavenly Father, may people see in us people who love Jesus and love each other. In his name we pray.